0: Thank <laughs> you. Welcome to Guerrilla Radio, recorded January 7th, 2023. Well, it's been almost 31 years since Unprofor, the UN Protection Forces' mission to the former Yugoslavia, Canada's military, then famed for peacekeeping, played a role in standing between the warring parties in hopes of a brokered truce. That mission failed, but not for the reasons believed then. In fact, according to records recently declassified, little about the conflict that led to the destruction of thousands of lives and ultimately redrew the political map of the Balkans occurred either why or how we were told tom secker is a uk-based private researcher journalist and frequently featured commentator on security and intelligence issues he's the host of the podcast clandestine principal behind spyculture.com the world's premier online archive of government involvement in the entertainment industry and author with matthew alford of the book national security cinema the shocking new evidence of government control in hollywood tom recently collaborated with kit Clarenberg of the gray zone on the article declassified intelligence files exposed Inconvenient Truths of Bosnian War. Tom Secker in the first half. And though it may be difficult to imagine now, back in the day people came out en masse to give voice to the notion of a world without war. They marched and sang, colorfully costumed and carrying clever signs, while massive puppets designed to attract a media more normalized to war footage danced along the boulevards and in the high streets. They were then called the left, now they're simply known as departed. David Rovics, whose frequent essays on political issues and societal observations are featured at Counterpunch and DissidentVoice.org, among other places, he describes himself as a broadcaster, musician, blogger, and author of the novel A Busker's Adventures. But he's more than just these things David Rovix and an autopsy on the U.S. left in the second half. But first, Tom Secker and CIA black ops, illegal weapons shipments, imported jihadist fighters, potential false flags, and stage managed atrocities, all revealed in Canada's declassified Yugoslavia cables. Welcome back to the program, Tom.
1: Thanks for having me. Good to be talking to you again.
0: Well, it's great to speak with you. It's been too long. I think 2017 was the last time we chatted. Since then, uh, your site, uh, spyculture.com, has taken off even more than it was at the time we last talked. And you've uh, collaborated with uh, Kit Clarenberg from The Great Zone on this article I mentioned in the introduction. Tom, yours and uh, Kit's article begins with the so-called established mythos of the Bosnian War. Uh, for those, Tom, too young to know or maybe even too old to remember, what was the this war supposed to be about?
1: Well, this was the, I guess, central war in the disintegration of Yugoslavia, the Federal Republic of Yugoslavia. And the traditional narrative, or at least the prevailing one in Western media, is that this was an inter-ethnic conflict between Croats, Bosniaks, who were mostly Muslims, and Serbs, that was largely driven, or primarily, the responsibility of the Serbs, who were supposedly being backed by the evil Serbian government in Belgrade led by the dictator Slobodan Milosevic but this narrative is essentially untrue I mean that's simply not what happened um that's not what was going on there those aren't the reasons why this war and the other wars associated with it and that came after it took place and I mean just for what it's worth Milosevic wasn't some evil genocidal dictator who wanted to take over parts of Croatia and Bosnia and declare a greater Serbia, he was the democratically elected leader of a coalition socialist government.
0: Yeah, not many people on this side of the water know much about Serbia, or certainly even Yugoslavia, the former Yugoslavia, or the history of uh, the Balkans generally. Uh, and it, it was particularly effective, the demonization. I guess what I'm getting at in, in my own sort of faltering way, and it reminds me of how I felt at the time, is is how a at, at, back in those days, it might be hard for people to remember, but there was still a peace movement and conducting wars wasn't done as easily as it is today. There, there was opposition to it. And yet that war, it seemed to checkmate the peace movement. It seemed to stall it in its tracks, uh, even uh, as people suspected that this wasn't what it was meant, what it was played up to be in in the NATO-friendly press, uh, all the press uh, here. Uh, This is is sort of what I'm fumbling towards, Tom, is this idea of how uh, the left was, or the Not necessarily just the left, but the anti-war movement was uh, nullified by the propaganda coming out of there. I mean, how how was it that they took the wind out of the anti-war sail?
1: Sure, sure. I'm with you now. How were they checkmated in this instance? Well, essentially, it's that, as I say, that it was depicted as an inter-ethnic conflict, which isn't really what happened. But fundamentally, it was driven by this notion that, oh, there are these genocides, there are these massacres going on, you know, tens of thousands of people being massacred, tens of thousands of women being raped regularly by Serbian forces, all of this kind of stuff, which I'm not saying atrocities didn't happen. Of course they did. It was a civil war, but it wasn't on that scale. That simply isn't true. And so if you're saying, oh, we're opposed to an intervention, we're opposed to the NATO no-fly zone, we're opposed to NATO airstrikes, we're opposed to UN troops on the ground for supposed peacekeeping purposes, then you're, oh, what, you're pro-ethnic massacre, you're pro-genocide now? (laughs) That's not very anti-war or pro-human rights of you. So what is your position on this? And it's like, well, either I have to spend, you know, three years reading about the history of the Balkans and actually figuring out how we got to this point and what the hell is going on there, or I have to sort of shut up, and so while there was opposition to this, I remember going to a protest, a sort of demonstration of some sort, peace demonstration, when I was I can't even remember how old, like twelve or something. Um, I wasn't like you know I was kind of dragged there by my parents. But even so, those things were going on, but the argument faltered. Because the left or the peace movement or the anti-war movement or whatever segment of society we're actually talking about here didn't really have an answer to those questions. Because frankly, I don't think most of them really even understood what the hell was going on.
0: When the Democrats and the the nominally leftist powers were in government, those are the ones that we often associate with the anti-war movement. They get the support of peace uh, activists, usually in those days, at least. And when they were the ones starting the war, it really—I think it, it really—it it took a uh, took people on the wrong foot. There, they couldn't quite get going. And in Canada, that was certainly the case. Canada's peacekeepers now, Canada's military now, doesn't have the burnished image that it did 30 years ago because of what has transpired. But back in those days, in this country, Canada, our military was perceived uh, as an agent for peace and good around the world. as back then it, we. I actually believe that peacekeeping was an honourable thing for Canada to be doing and that we were making a positive contribution. Canada's peacekeepers went into this and you and Kit uh, are reporting on the files that came out, uh, the declassified files that came out recently out of Canada. First of all, you're not Canadians, neither you nor Kit. Uh, and it's, i've not seen any reporting on this in this country tell me first why you a brit and kit as well decided to tell a story about canada
1: well it's it's primarily because we're both we both have long standing interests in these wars we both have a fascination with that part of europe i in particular am fascinated with the history of the mujahideen and associated groups like al qaeda and so on so that's where i was primarily coming from, it's just that I had a general interest in this, and so when Kit sent me a link and said, oh, you know, Canada Declassified have just dumped 2,400 pages of intelligence reports on the war in Bosnia, I thought I'm going to actually have to take a look at this and see if this is all worth reading, and it turned out it was. I mean, they're a fascinating bunch. It takes a long time to go through that many documents, obviously, and try and make sense of all this and arrange it into some kind of order for an actual article, but um, yeah, it's a really in-depth view of a period of that war. I mean, we weren't really writing it as a story about Canada, I suppose, but this nonetheless is a story of what happened to those Canadian peacekeepers and the absolute mess that was made of the situation they were dumped into, largely not through their own fault, I have to say, though this is one of the strange things At the exact same time that Madeleine Albright at the State Department was saying, oh, NATO airstrikes will help stabilise the situation, they will actually help protect the peacekeepers and make their mission more safe and easier to do, the Canadian reports, these intelligence cables, were saying over and over again, if NATO runs airstrikes, the threat level to our peacekeepers will rise dramatically in all areas this will destabilize the situation, no one will trust us, no one will even believe that we are here, kind of peacekeeping mission will basically be screwed. But at the same time as those contradictory statements are being made, these reports are also including targeting data primarily on Serb artillery and other large weaponry, and I'm talking about precise geolocated targeting data. So they were actually providing information to NATO that would ultimately help them in their airstrikes while saying if You know, we're opposed to these airstrikes. We think it will just make a mess of the situation and put our troops in even more danger.
0: Well, and it puts to the lie the whole notion of peacekeeping when now suddenly Canada's taking part in aggressive attacks against one side in a conflict. Well, there is that. I mean, the peacekeepers, one of the major problems they faced is
1: like the delineation of what they were exactly able to do. Like the rules of engagement were extremely restrictive. So when it came to them being in place to witness a attack or a massacre taking place, they couldn't actually stop it. They were largely there to observe things, to supposedly enforce the arms embargo, which was kind of a farce. There was lots of smuggling and other things going on. You know, there was a lot of weapons getting into Croatia and Bosnia and uh, the Serbian part of Bosnia throughout this whole period. The arms embargo was a joke. So calling them peacekeepers is a it's a kind of a misleading term. To a large extent, they were actually there as intelligence operatives, just observing and gathering data and feeding it back to headquarters. That's in some ways what these intelligence cables reveal, because that's where most of this information is coming from. So, <laughs> are they peacekeepers or something else?
0: This report, by the way, comes from Canada De- declassified. That that's a group out of the Bill Graham Center for Contemporary International History at the U of T, University of Toronto. Uh, they, they've released tons and st- of declassified uh, uh, materials in this country. That's uh, what they do. So, so now, Tom, you've gotten together with uh, Kit Clarenberg, as I mentioned, from uh, the Grayzone.com website. This is a this is a bit of a departure for you, though, right? I mean, you're this. How different is this from the kind of work that you do? You, Generally, at spy culture?
1: Well, certainly, what I generally do at spy culture is focused on the government relationship with Hollywood and how the propaganda around wars like war in Bosnia plays out in the entertainment industry. But I have been covering things like the history of Al Qaeda and the Mujahideen and covert operations and these sorts of subjects on that site and elsewhere for quite a long time. It's just not my primary focus. Like I say, there are specific wars and there are specific countries that I'm particularly interested in. The Balkans, the former Yugoslavia is one of them, Afghanistan is another. So sure, I don't write regularly about, say, Ukraine, but I do write about those countries
0: and the histories of those countries that really matter to me. What of the collaboration, though, with uh, Grey Zone rather than doing this work on your own site? Well, Kit is a
1: longtime friend of mine and someone I've worked with bunch of different stuff. And he's been writing for the Grey Zone and several other places lately. And so when the original project that we were doing this for kind of fell apart, we decided let's write it up as a Grey Zone piece and see if we can take it from there. And it has already got quite a lot of traction. I mean, the biggest newspaper in Serbia has picked this up as a front page story and has a big double page feature in it this week. So, well, while it may not be getting covered in Canada, believe me, places other places are seeing this and recognising the importance of this story is.
0: Yeah, well the axe doesn't remember the tree is the saying around here but uh, in Serbia of course this all of this is fresh even though I, I don't know how many in Canada have any idea of, of, of the role this country played in the conflict there and 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 a role that isn't as, as advertised if you just tuned in you're listening to guerrilla radio I'm speaking today with Tom Secker Tom's a uk-based private researcher journalist he's a frequently featured commentator on security and intelligence issues and he's the host of clandestine uh, the program that he features on his website, spyculture.com, which is, quote, the world's premier online archive about government involvement in the entertainment industry. He's the author with Matthew Alford of the book National Security Cinema, the shocking new evidence of government control in Hollywood. Well, that evidence isn't so new now, Tom, thanks to your work over at uh, Spy Culture. Other people are picking up on this. I see it all over the place. We're speaking today about uh, the article he and Kit Klarenberg put up at Grey Zone called Declassified intelligence files exposed inconvenient truths of the Bosnian War. Some of those truths are listed at, right at the top of your article, Tom. the uh, CIA black ops, illegal weapons shipments, imported jihadist fighters, potential false flags and stage managed atrocities are just some of it. All that sounds very familiar today, though, when you mentioned that the wars that followed the Yugoslav wars and, and NATO's involvement in there, it, it seems that this was a, a template of a sort. Oh, Certainly.
1: When you look at the number of so-called interventions, which are often, in effect, small wars that NATO takes part in or NATO countries take part in, an awful lot of them are done under the guise of some kind of humanitarian intervention, some kind of, we have to rescue these people from these evil people. And for, okay, most of the last 20 years or so, that's often been some branch of the Islamist terrorism enemy, I say in inverted commas. But even when it's not, Um, Syria, you know, this evil government that's supposedly carrying out genocidal gas attacks on its own people and so on and so forth. And that's why we're getting involved here. That's not why the US and Britain started carrying out drone strikes in Syria, but that's a convenient narrative. And like I say, at the end of the Cold War, there was this question bumping around, what are things like the CIA and NATO for anymore? Well, therefore things like, oh, Bosnia, you know, Look, there's this terrible sort of inter-ethnic, apparently genocidal war going on. We have to get in there and, and stop this from happening, stop this from getting any worse. That's what they're for. And because that was set up as the post-Cold War narrative, that was the whole kind of character that was built around NATO and around the sort of Western military and intelligence establishment more broadly, that has kind of prevailed since then because it's it's proven quite difficult to challenge it's proven quite difficult to find a way to sidestep the, I guess, atrocity porn, for want of a better word, that we're fed these often not even images. We're just told that something terrible has happened, and therefore we must do something in order to prevent it from happening again. And that's I mean, that's, in some ways, the entire philosophy of the security state these days is to say, oh, if we don't do this, then something horrible will happen. And whether that's a Russian invasion or Chinese hackers or terrorists or Ebola or anything else, it's still, you know, this is our excuse. You have to follow on with what we're saying here. You have to go along with it. And it has proven effective in a wide range of areas, policing, uh, public health, foreign policy, uh, surveillance especially you know, the the amount of surveillance that people accept because of these kinds of narratives is is fairly astonishing. So, yeah, yeah, it was in many ways a template, or at least I think because it proved successful, because it proved so successful, that people came away from it thinking, we did a good thing here. We took down those evil Serbs and we're going to take down Milosevic next. People felt right about it, rather than having been deeply disturbed by the the, the mass deception that had been perpetrated on them. And so because that was so successful, yeah, I think they did use it as a template for several interventions, wars, other programs of various kinds since then.
0: Well, I know for the United States especially, but the West generally, it was a chance to get back to the good war. Vietnam really muddied the waters in that sense, but now they they could get back online with their military industrial complex churning away at, at full power, and the people could go and sleep comfortably at night thinking, well, this was a good war because we were after the next new Hitler. Well, Milosevic, the, the Hitler that followed Milosevic, uh, or maybe was uh, uh, in tandem with him, uh, Saddam Hussein, he didn't survive a- at all the invasion, but Milosevic did, and he was dragged through uh, the court system that was hastily created, the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia, famous or infamous, depending on your point of view for its uh, uh, the way it conducted itself, and then Milosevic died in custody, a- as it turned out. But We see that uh, there's calls now, and to to bring this more into the present, uh, with Ukraine, there's calls that a kind of uh, ICTY be set up for Ukraine as well. What parallels do you see, Tom, between what's happening in Ukraine today and how things unfolded in uh, Yugoslavia? Is there a direct line of continuity with those two things?
1: I mean, there's several direct lines of continuity. One of them is that, I mean, one of the primary reasons why what was actually kind of nationalist liberation series of wars in the former Yugoslavia turned into a bloody ethnic conflict is because the West backed the most extreme versions of the leadership in both Croatia and Bosnia, Tushman in Croatia, Izet Begovic in Bosnia, both former fascist sympathizers, both frankly lunatics, I mean, at one point, Izet Begovic conducted a kind of ethnic cleansing of his own cabinet and military leadership. He kicked out anyone he didn't deem sufficiently Bosnian. And this is the people in which the the US and, and Britain, to a large extent, placed their trust uh, and they encouraged these people. They provoked them. They you know, very much encouraged Izet Begovich, for example, to just keep pushing for more and more in the peace negotiations, thus making those negotiations impossible, and therefore demanding that NATO intervene to prevent further bloodshed. And you see the same in Ukraine, that they've empowered a government, in some ways the US actually helped bring into power, which has fascist elements in it, that are themselves conducting horrendous massacres that are largely getting ignored as part of this war, The central Ukrainian government has done all kinds of hideous things since this war started. It is conducting a a very oppressive approach to this war in terms of its conduct towards its own people. So if they are going to set up a tribunal after this war is done, I think they're going to have to prosecute a lot more than just Vladimir Putin. I think they're going to have to prosecute a lot more than just the Russians. And yet I can't see that happening. Can you? You see, as of battalion commanders being stuck up on a tribunal, because I can't.
0: Well, I, I can't see uh, Vladimir Putin being strung up the way Saddam Hussein was, or maybe dying in custody of uh, congenital heart problems or whatever else. However, else they would sell it. Maybe that. But when you talk about uh, how uh, in Ukraine the the so called Accords trying to broker peace, uh, uh, Angela Merkel came out uh, last month and. Acknowledged what was pretty obvious that the Minsk 1 and 2 agreements were just meant to buy time so that uh, the Kiev regime could arm up for this uh, desired conflict, desired by NATO and, and the United States. It, it reminded me of Rambule in Yugoslavia, where there was a very convoluted and complex set of negotiations, the tenets of which were just uh, so outrageous the Serbs could, could never... Uh, accept them, that its inevitability was war. It seems very similar to me. Do you see any uh, parallels there?
1: Oh, certainly that, you know, this is a war that's taking place in Southeast Europe, that the Americans are only really involved for geostrategic and geopolitical reasons. These countries don't matter to them in terms of resources or anything as tangible as that. Um, And they're doing a lot of things to try and scupper any notion of a peace process. They certainly Destroyed any notion of a quick peace. You know that could have been possible with this war, but became completely impossible within a matter of weeks. And so here we are now, nearly a year later, and they're continuing to do so because it seems that their objective here is basically just to bleed the Russians as much as possible and hope that it destabilizes Russia so they can take down Putin. So yeah, that's very similar to what what they did with the Milosevic narrative and, like you say, the Milosevic Serbia template.
0: Well, I'm sure NATO. Considers Yugoslavia to be a huge success. They they, balkanized the Balkans or rebalkanized the Balkans, setting as they wished to do. And that emboldened them, I would argue, to move forward in what we've seen since is war after war after war with the intent of going into nation states and balkanizing them as well. Iraq was a very blatant example of that. You finish your article with Kit and you say that there's the the toxic legacy of the Balkan wars endures. Now we're seeing, Tom, that these tensions that really were, were buried over a very thin veneer are starting to bubble to the surface again, that there, there's problems in what's called the Western Balkan nations now, been rebranded. Are you following what's going on there, and are you seeing echoes of the past uh, re-emerging?
1: Well, certainly. I mean, the political system in particular that was set up in Bosnia at the end of the war under the Dayton Accords and what came after in the summer of '95 was always doomed doomed to some kind of failure because it doesn't work as a functioning democracy. It doesn't actually represent people in a proper way. And so inevitably, those particular problems um, are bubbling up again in terms of national identity, in terms of what is the government actually doing for us and what is it there for. I'm not following it that closely, but yeah, from what I have been reading, it's like, yeah, this is largely just a legacy of the structures that were put in place by the NATO-led Western uh, nations at the end of the Bosnian War. So they are in many ways responsible for this. And sure, if they do something else like that in Ukraine or Russia or anywhere else, we will see the same problems
0: emerging. We always do. You know, India, Cyprus,
1: Palestine, Ireland, it keeps happening.
0: Well, and there was a moment too in the in the Yugoslav wars when Russia became involved, and and there was a worry that that this could escalate into a global conflict. Now in Ukraine, well, that that's pretty obvious that they're involved there, and it seems that the risk of the a global conflagration uh, is lost entirely on the people in Washington today.
1: Yes, they seem to be aston. They seem to have an astonishing tolerance for risk. Because while this situation hasn't turned into the nightmare that some people were saying it would be in by now, it is still pretty bad. And you never know quite what's going to come next. And yeah, I mean, particularly with Ukraine, but as with all wars, my, my only real hope for it, my only real thing that I have to say about it is, is to hope that some kind of peace can be established as soon as possible.
0: Because what a
1: terrible, horrible, stupid
0: thing. Well, as somebody who grew up with the shadow of nuclear conflagration, uh, I I can see that the younger generation might not... Really appreciate the the terror of of that, uh, but they might learn to. Now, Tom, let's talk a little bit about spyculture.com in the last moments we've got. I'm looking at your site right now. And it's always a terrific site, and I, I always recommend people go there. Propaganda is my is my first interest, and and you've done a, such a wonderful job there. Your latest uh, feature is theaters of war: How the Pentagon and CIA took Hollywood. You want to say a few words about that?
1: Sure that's a documentary put out by the Media Education Foundation that Matt and I who wrote National Security Cinema uh, we were approached by another academic Roger Stahl who you may be familiar with who's also written on this kind of topic and he wanted to make a documentary inspired by that book and he's built out a whole bunch of research beyond that we've done a whole bunch of new research since then and that's what's gone into this documentary so yeah you, you can watch it um online streaming i mean you can watch the trailer on my site you have to pay a few dollars to actually get the full documentary but yeah it's kind of a summation and distillation of the last 10 years of work i've been doing on spy culture
0: yeah please take a look that's spyculture.com well and all the other features there too you don't have to pay for everything there and there's the variety and scope is wonderful and also really mind-numbing to see the um, the involvement, not only in the Hollywood in the film business, but in television and in video games and everywhere where the Pentagon and its agents, the spy agencies and everything else, all have their fingers uh, gently massaging uh, the unconscious of uh, the American public and those beyond as well.
1: For sure, that isn't obviously the documentary, it isn't the only thing on the site. Like you say, I run a podcast, Clandestine, that's up to over 200 episodes now. I write articles, I post the vast majority of the documents that I use in all of this research. So if you're someone who likes primary resources, then you'll like spyculture.com. There's a whole bunch of stuff there, depending on, you know, how you like to absorb things, whether it's, you know, video, audio, reading, whatever.
0: For listeners, the next time you're watching Marvel or anything else, anytime you see uh, military equipment and military officers and spies and everything else, you did a lot of work on this Jack Ryan TV show about how the CIA and the spy industry gets itself uh, embedded into popular culture and entertainment. Uh, But you can't watch these things in the same way once you've gone to spyculture.com and seen uh, what's going on to manipulate your consciousness (laughs) behind the scenes. Tom, again, thanks a lot for coming on. And It's terrific work and the stuff you've done I I lamented when I was we were communicating via email I said well this isn't going to get picked up this article that you and Kit have worked on it's not going to get picked up in Canada because the media here uh, just I don't know they're just they're not interested in this kind of stuff even though Canada is is at the center of the story and it's often said that oh there's Canadian connections has any Canadian media tried to contact either you or Kit to talk about this?
1: Not so far not that I'm aware of I mean maybe Kit but not me no
0: All right. Well, then this is a Guerrilla Radio exclusive. Thanks a lot, Tom, for coming on again and taking the time, eh?
1: Oh, no worries, man. Good to be talking with you, as always.
0: Well, my great pleasure. Now, I want everyone else to stick around because David Rovick's going to be coming straight up after the break, and we're going to talk a little bit more about Ukraine and about his work on the disappearing left, especially the disappearing left in the context of the peace movement. Thanks again, Tom. Thank you.
1: Their message always to everybody through all their advertising, all their PR, everything is, we are your friends. And it's like, no, you are not our friends. Friends are not people. This bottom line is how much profit they can make out of you. It is completely different.
0: Guerrilla Radio, knowing who our real friends are since
1: 1999. We're running out of
2: time to put out a fire. Fire. At the Or three, mid all the lightning and thunder, those left alive, as long as they lived, will wonder was there something that could have been done before nuclear winter blocked out the sun? After the earth that we once knew Was blown asunder At the end of World War III Any pundits who may still be found Will have heated debates About how the end came around Was it the Black Sea blockade When the rush for the end times was made Or the breaking of promises promised when the wall People look for clean water to drink As they're dreaming of the days when they had a faucet and sink Wishing that they could try again To talk
0: to belligerents Welcome back to guerrilla radio well it may be difficult to imagine now but back in the day people came out en masse to give voice to the notion of a world without war they marched and sang colorfully costumed and carrying clever signs while massive puppets designed to attract the attention of a media more normalized to war footage Danced along the boulevards and in the high street. They were then called the left. Now they're simply known as departed. David Rovick's frequent essays on political issues and societal observations are featured at Counterpunch and DissidentVoice.org, among other places. He's a broadcaster, musician, blogger, and author of the novel uh, Busker's Adventures. His weekly program This Week with David Rovix can be found at his website, davidrovix.com, and on Substack, where you can read his essays, listen to his hundreds of original songs, and catch some of his hundreds of interviews. His recent article, An Autopsy on the U.S. Left, verifies what many of us have known but may not have had the courage to admit, the fact that this parrot is dead Welcome back to the program, David.
3: Thank you, Chris. Great to be with you.
0: Well, it's I'm always a great.
3: regular listener these days, and it's a great, great podcast you got well, going on there. Well,
0: thanks a lot. And, you know, we're doing what we can, but I, I, I won't start comparing shows because yours is much bigger than mine. <laughs> but, uh, David, uh, first of all, I'll say Happy New Year's. and And I say that because you begin your... Your piece saying that rather than doing a year-end review, as so many others have done, because we were setting this up to be, you know, something before the new years, uh, but mm. you said that that for you that was something like spinning my wheels in a snowdrift. So you decided, on, on what I see, is the, the much more morose uh, course a uh, post-mortem of the American left going back a long time. But w- when David in your mind at least was the moment that the left that left shuffled off uh, its mortal coil in America i mean I, I i guess
3: i think there have been so many so many missed opportunities and and so, so many moments when there could have been who knows what happening uh, but what happened in the end was the forces of reaction or the forces of uh, the state power or the 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 uh, forces of capitalist propaganda or whatever else uh, ended up being uh, victorious in so many different phases uh, when you know sort of moments in history in the past century when things could have gone in different directions uh, and I think basically anytime there's a moment of mass social upheaval a real significant movement on the streets, then that is um, a possibility that things could go in different directions depending on how people organize and also depending on how uh, the the state and the powers that be uh, respond. I think we are recently at another one of those uh, moments. and um, I mean, I don't know what kind of promise the recent uh, movements on the streets in the past couple of years really had necessarily, but... Definitely, they are uh, in a state of self-cancellation and defeat. And then it's one of many uh, similar moments in history where, where uh, there, there, was possibilities, uh, it, it, there were possibilities and they were dashed by the uh, response of uh, the more powerful element in, in, in the whole process, which is the state. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, the, the pattern goes way back and it's, and it's I think, worth reviewing. I I start my my essay uh, talking about the Palmer Raids in 1919, and that was certainly one of many points in history when there was the possibility of the movement on the streets at the time having even more uh, impact on society than it had. And, And it was huge at the time, both in the U.S. and Canada, the Industrial Workers of the World, or in Canada, it was called the One Big Union. But in, in the U.S., that was uh, put an end to by by the uh, formation of the National Police Force, the FBI, and, and what they did with the, the bomber raids, which was a big enough concerted effort to destroy the movement that it ultimately worked, as with uh, other similar efforts to destroy other movements that were significant and, and, and full of you know, possibilities, like the uh, movement on the streets in in the 1930s, which I think was was really sort of, the wind was taken out of its sails largely by the anti-communist movement and by, sort of post-war American prosperity and various other factors.
0: So, well, the, yeah, there well there is these, these tidal movements. Sure, I mean like the the, the pendulum swings one way or the other. The tide comes and rises and falls, but that doesn't mean. It's that that the movement is entirely moribund. I mean, the reversals of the of the Palmer Raids, as you mentioned, and the beginning of um, the ascension of FDR, and then the Second World War. That could have, or the Red Scare that followed it. Any of these could say, "Oh well, that's it. The left is finished." And yet, it sort of keeps on trundling along. But your article doesn't seem to be saying that. I mean, well, the title, at least, says this is a, this is this parrot, as I said, is is expired
3: <laughs> i mean there's always the possibility uh, and of course the, the circumstances the conditions of oppression are are naturally going to give rise to resistance and so there's always that you know and so you never you can never um, say the left is dead as long as people are still alive but in its current iteration it's dead and i think the, you know, there are ways to and it's not just a philosophical question it, it's uh, i back it up uh, i back up this observation with with data which is like basically like for one example as you, you know mentioned the war economy and all the uh, billions being sent to ukraine and uh the fact that we i mean of course in this country we just passed yet another biggest ever military budget annual military budget 850 yeah. billion dollars it's about half of the overall federal um, budget or taxes at work
0: that, yeah well that's, know, that's worth mentioning that it, that for it, just in the biden's tenure it, it's jumped from i mean uh, just the mind boggling 700 billion a year to $850 billion a year. I don't even think if you put $1 bills and stacked up $800 billion, I, I don't know, they'd go to the moon or something. But that is under a Democratic um, administration. When I was growing up and coming to political awareness, the Republicans were the bad guys. They were the the war party. But it makes it so much more difficult, in my mind at least, for the left to to come together when a Democrat is in power, if they're still harboring this idea that the Democrats are the the powers of, of progressivism and of peace, when it clearly isn't proven by recent history, at least.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the uh, of course, the idea that the Democrats have been party of bees has always been just a fantasy, just like you know the the idea that the Democrats have been the party of uh, racial equality, another fantasy. The I mean, the fact that the, the uh, people on the streets to the left of the Democrats presumably um, haven't managed to organize a large-scale anti-war protest, let alone a movement uh, or a- against militarism, really since uh, the fall of 2005, which I believe is the last time we had a large-scale anti-war uh, uh-huh. gathering in Washington, D.C. And it is really, uh, from my observation so often the case, although we've had impressive social movements take root during the time when there have been Democrats in the White House, I think most notably in the late 90s uh, with the global justice movement when Bill Clinton was in the White House. But in, certainly in the 21st century, as long as uh, there's any hope among the people for the next Democrat to be less of a warmonger or you know, perhaps, I mean, in the case of Obama, you know, there was a real, there was a real widespread hope that he was going to uh, change the course of things in in this country. I mean, there was irrational sort of people, you know, just making this, you know, hopeful connection that maybe this is like Martin Luther King or something. But of course, Obama isn't Martin Luther King and doesn't have King's politics, despite whatever, you know, dreams and fantasies uh, so much of the electorate had for Obama. Uh, he was not leading any kind of poor people's march on Washington, and he had no intention of doing anything about dominance of the economy by banks and, and dominance of the globe by the U.S. military. You know, uh, he did not uh, prosecute the war criminals of the previous administration. He didn't pull groups out of at Iraq or Afghanistan. He he he. Jailed whistleblowers and all all the all the stuff that he did, but but there wasn't a, a, a large scale opposition coming from the kind of anti war organizers or the sentiment that that existed uh, for certainly the first first term of the Bush administration, and that's that's a that says a lot by itself. I mean, people can say anything about the state of the left uh, today, but if that left that supposedly exists is not capable of organizing an anti-war protest let alone a movement then you know i don't know what we call it but it's not the left in any kind of traditional sense because the left has traditionally always been about the workers of the world uniting and uh, the working class not being pitted against other other nas- elements of the working class to fight wars for imperial gain that's been a basic element of the left, you know, forever. You know, it's been a phenomenon that's opposed to capitalism and imperialism, and in support of brotherhood and sisterhood, and and uh, equality and and uh, sharing the wealth. You know, that's in uh, protesting imperialism uh, is is key to that whole equation, and it ain't happening.
0: Well, and you mentioned 2005. Well, of course, the, the Republican, you know, the Iraq was going on in Afghanistan. The Republicans were in power, uh, and the peace demos were out in the street. Even you know before that, before the Iraq war started, there was tens of hundreds, millions of people out in the street around the world trying to stop that from happening. Uh, but while Trump was in there, there didn't seem to be a mobilization. I mean, it's it, the it's tempting to say, well, this is along party lines. If there's a Democratic Party in power, the peace movement's not going to mobilize to make them look bad. But why was there nothing uh, mobilized against Trump? There were still wars and such going on. American imperialism didn't take a rest while he was in the White House. There were a lot of uh, protests
3: against Trump, but they weren't um, protests against uh, a particular anti- – it wasn't – they didn't have an anti-militarist – uh, sort of uh, aspect to them. They were largely protests that were organized by and attended by and promoted by uh, the liberal press and, and and liberals. I mean, it was the Democratic Party to a large extent that was in the streets protesting Trump. And I mean, in retrospect, that was also true um, to a large extent of the folks who are out in the streets protesting Bush. And I think um, partly it's... it's um, I think that there's a great benefit to being around long enough to see this pattern repeat because it it's different every time, you know, the the, the circumstances, everything is different every time. So it's hard to say it's not exactly a cycle uh, like a, you know, like a washing machine or something. But it is a, a, a very repetitive phenomenon that you see. There are so many elements out there that. Are trying to make themselves look like a movement when it's actually a media-engineered, uh, Democratic Party-sponsored thing that is designed to accomplish something that they are hoping to accomplish, and and they have a lot of means to make it look like a grassroots movement when it really isn't, and that's uh, that's just part of the landscape of of the and it has been for a long time it's not something unique to the current period with social media algorithms i mean prior to social media just regular media could engineer this kind of you know patriotic fervor or opposition to somebody that's supposedly the next hitler or whatever it is you know anytime there's a republican in power in this country there are democrats saying that uh this is going to be the end of democracy and they're going to be the next hitler and You know, and pretty much anytime there's a Democrat in power, the Republicans are saying similar kinds of things. You know, it's kind of the dynamic and it has been for a long time.
0: Well, what about about these phony groups? You you have uh, like Black Lives Matter and and other nominally left groups that posit themselves as opposing uh, governments and fascism and everything else. And yet they end up in being the prime censors of any kind of political thought that goes against their grain they seem to be more right than even the right sometimes
3: yeah i i completely agree and um it's it's uh
0: yeah it it's a
3: phenomenon i mean the the phenomenon that's going on is one that i think a lot of people um are especially younger folks younger than either of us i think are having a um or or i should say folks older than than uh, you know our age or older are having a real hard time trying to get their heads around it because you know this whole this whole idea that uh, the since the left has basically abdicated any kind of like anti-war or anti-capitalist position in favor of of what has frequently been referred to in in recent months by in some circles as race reductionism uh, then the left has been basically handing to the right the mantle of if they want it of uh, opposing militarism and capitalism which is a bizarre position for the Republicans to be in since they have always been uh, the party of imperialism and capitalism, along with the Democrats. But some of them, like Trump, most notably, have been trying to pick up this mantle. I mean, that was basically why he got elected in 2016. It was pretty much what he was running on, whether or not the liberals paid attention to him and his actual speeches enough to understand what his appeal was which I don't think most people on the left have done, or liberals either. But his appeal, to a large extent, was that he was not a fan, he said, of the wars of aggression. Uh, He was not a fan of the U.S. being the world's police. He not a fan of sending off the U.S. youth to go you know, occupy other countries and spending all our taxes on this kind of thing. And he talked about that kind of stuff regularly, not a fan of the free trade deals that he said were benefiting uh, other countries and not the U.S. and working class. And he used the words working class on a daily basis, which nobody else was doing who was running for president at the time. That's the weird dyna- dynamic that we're in now is, is um, you know, it's really the, the traditional to the extent that there've ever been clear traditional line of what the right is and what the left is, and it's it's not at all clear now. Uh, yeah, and certainly, you know, the the calls for censorship and the calls for uh, you know we we have to deplatform this person or we have to uh, cancel this event because we don't agree with what this person is saying. This is this is a really dangerous intolerant bad uh thinking and it, and it's not new either it's not new to black lives matter but it uh, or door to antifa you know it goes way back to at least to the 1930s and the anti-platforming campaigns and the weird thing is that people are so committed to this idea of de platforming and censoring and physically attacking people who are holding a speech or a concert and that you don't like this kind of tactic has become more and more normalized by the liberal uh, press who is supporting these kinds of what used to be sort of militant antifa types of tactics going back to the deplatforming campaigns of the 1930s and they have these 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 deplatforming censorship kind of campaigns have always backfired they've always backfired they, they don't accomplish what the people pushing them are hoping to accomplish they accomplish exactly the opposite and yet the folks you know advocating for this kind of tactic today uh, on the grounds of safe space and um, whatever other similar arguments they are uh, you know they're, they're actually history demonstrates that they are not going to accomplish what they're setting out to accomplish, but they will only uh, embolden and empower the right, which is exactly what's happening again today.
0: If you've just tuned in, you're listening to Guerrilla Radio. i speaking today with David Rovix. David is a touring singer, songwriter, a regular contributor to Counterpunch. His podcast is This Week with David Rovix. That's the blurb on his Substack site, DavidRovics.substack.com. David, is Substack going to save us?
3: Anything that is taking sp- sort of space away, uh, space in our minds and on our on, on the internet away from these m- massive big tech uh, companies that are basically have largely accomplished full spectrum dominance of our global communications and our uh, understanding of what's going on in the world and, and news consumption. Um, I mean, it's an incredibly dystopic situation, and get about to get astronomically worse with uh, artificial intelligence being being increasingly applied to the whole equation but i think um certainly things like substack are a, a good little sort of shot in the dark and and a good a good effort at uh, taking the taking a little space back from facebook and twitter uh, I, I don't know uh, but, you know of course w- where it's going or or who's going to buy it or you know like no idea what's coming next but I'm always looking for ways to be communicating with people out there that is not controlled by Facebook or Twitter or YouTube.
0: Well, Elon Musk and my cat say that Elon Musk is trying to take over uh, Substack now. I, I, I know running from platform to platform, trying to stay one step ahead of the censors, you know uh, facebook and then uh uh, youtube and then even patreon and you know it's it's, everybody's just running one step uh, ahead of them or trying to at least or just shutting up you're saying okay well i don't have to talk about the whatever the uh whatever is being deemed controversial by the algorithm i'll just stay safe in the middle lane kind of or the middle of the lane
3: yeah it's, um, I mean, you know, capitalism makes this a constant problem because, of course, if Substack is profitable venture, then there's going to be some bigger company that's going to want to buy it and then, you know, take away their the the anything good about what they're doing. and And this has been a pattern with all of these platforms, uh, most of them. I mean, certainly with uh, the the vulture capitalist kind of entities like Facebook and uh, Spotify and, and how they have managed to dominate their th- these these markets by offering a wonderful helpful service at first for years and then changing the rules all of a sudden this is what they can do because they they control the they control the platform. So I mean, Yeah, the way just that wait, Facebook just waiting.
0: They just wait long enough yeah. for all they the competition to disappear, like Uber, like they just wait until there's no cabs left. And then, oh, no, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they come jumping. Yeah, then well, we, suddenly
3: Uber starts charging three times as much and, you know, that kind of thing. I mean, Facebook, they offered a, a free alternative to email lists that had sort of extra added benefits. And that's what they did at first. And they got, probably most people as far as I know to stop using email and uh, just use exclusively Facebook's platforms for various forms of communication. And it used to be that it was comparable that if you're a a musician with thousands of followers, then it was comparable to sending an email to your email list with thousands of followers in terms of the results and who would see your posts. And then suddenly they changed the rules overnight. You know, which most people wouldn't even have noticed if you weren't promoting tours and stuff like that on Facebook. If you were just sharing pictures of your kids or whatever, then you would never have noticed that what happened. But they suddenly changed the algorithm so that what had been this useful free platform that got everybody to leave their email accounts, stop paying attention to email lists, uh, was suddenly only accessible to your fans if you have fans out there uh, if you pay. That's how they change the algorithm. So, you know, as they say these days, you know, don't bother sharing a link on Facebook. You know, nobody's going to see it. You know, you can post pictures, you can post rants, but don't post links. Nobody's going to see them. That did not used to be the case.
0: We should remember and Maybe the, the younger generation hasn't heard But there is no free lunch It appears to be at first But the bill always comes due Your latest article Just out today, A Tale of Two Narratives Is up at your uh, Substack site davidrovics.substack.com And uh, the news, uh, you know, of course, yesterday is the second anniversary of uh, uh, another kind of demonstration from the other side of the political spectrum, the famous January 6 revolt or whatever you, uh, I think the jury is literally still out on what to e- even call this. We're seeing the, uh, we're watching on the news, this whole thing about the uh, Kevin McCarthy trying to become the Speaker of the House. And it's mm-hmm. been a high drama and in, the, in the wee hours last night. He, after a fourteen or fifteen attempts he was finally uh, in place to, to take over for Nancy Pelosi's Democrats uh, David, what's the significance of this for especially for Canadians we're looking at this circus and I mean is it really such a big deal?
3: I don't think it I don't think it's such a big deal actually who is who has a bare majority in the Congress because anytime either party has a bare majority then they always complain that they would need uh, more than sixty percent in order to uh, in order to get anything past uh, filibusters and so it's uh i mean gridlock is sort of built into the system in terms of anything useful that anybody might do and uh but what we what we're left with is is lots of uh, bipartisan agreement that is rarely talked about in the in the press but they agree on the major things like spending half of our budget our taxes on the military there's no That's not controversial at all. And when Trump was in power, the Democrats who had the majority in the Congress actually gave him a military budget that was tens of billions of dollars larger than he had requested.
0: Okay, but so now, David, um, we're fast running out of time. You're, you're uh, a busy guy, a super busy guy. You're, we mentioned your, your touring uh, bulletin is up, davidrovics.com slash tour. You can go find out more about it. you want to say a couple words about your upcoming uh, progress there?
3: Well, I'll be in uh, Hawaii later this month and oh. uh, doing a tour of California and southern Oregon uh, next month, Australia in late March, and then uh, Denmark- england scotland and ireland in um, late may through late june so if if anybody's listening from any of those places i will see you soon
0: well and how david do people uh, stay uh, up to date with you and uh, you know there's Davidrovics.com i mentioned is there better ways that they can subscribe or whatnot and how do they go about that
3: yeah they can get on my uh substack newsletter list which is free and and you can sign up on my website davidrofix.com and uh, a great way to keep up with uh, with any artists that are touring pretty much if you want to see who's playing near you and you don't you're finding facebook that is not telling you what you want to hear or you know anything useful that you're looking for uh, you can subscribe to song on Songkick where all the artists that you might be wanting to follow are on Songkick already and uh, whether or not people out there have actually heard of it. And it's, it's No, no I've never heard it.
0: It's one word, right. Songkick, so on song kick. kickable. Yeah,
3: yeah. and if, you're, if you use Spotify uh, then um, then and you see gigs of some artists that you're listening to uh, on the side of the screen, if you're using a tablet or a, or a laptop or something and, and it's a bigger version of the screen, then you'll see where their gigs are. That's Songkick. That is the app that's allowing them to post their gigs on Spotify, and you can get e- you'll get emails uh, from Songkick when artists you follow are playing within 50 miles of your home. So it's it's very handy little service
0: well i subscribe to davidrovics.com or davidrovics.substack.com and so i'm getting your articles and stuff and and updates and and that works pretty good for me until they pull the rug out under it you know which is we're expecting any time now well david yeah. have great luck with your tour and uh and Thanks a lot for all the hard work that you do, that you in the, other than musical work, but your musical work too. And um, I'll talk to you the next time. Uh, and I want to also thank Tom Secker for coming on. SpyCulture.com is his site. It's it's really amazing. And if you want to get into propaganda and how it's slid in uh, to Hollywood movies and into uh, video games and all kinds of other manners, it's it's uh, really fascinating to look at. But um, yeah, thanks a lot, David, for coming on, and uh, good luck with the tour
3: thanks so much, Chris. Take care, everybody Four, As the few
2: left alive survey rubble remaining wondering how long they'll survive Too late to question the story. Of expansion, or conquest, or glory No time to rewind from the date Armageddon's arrived At the end of World War III